Fantasy Animation is a completely free, online, educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. It is staffed by a volunteer army of academics and animators who give up their time to run the website so that our audience can be kept informed not just about the latest goings-on in the world of all things that are drawn, imagined and sculpted, but to help inform them about the historical, political, ethical and aesthetic ramifications of what it means to make an animated fantasy. Check out our weekly blog posts containing insights on everything from the sexual identity of Spongebob Squarepants to how to make an animation on a pair of knickers. You can also access our archive of podcasts featuring Oscar-winning VFX supervisors, historians, classicists, animators and folklorists discussing their favourite examples of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, or visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm still Alex Sargent. And I'm Chris Holliday. Uh, today we are talking Chris E.T., the extraterrestrial, um, a yes. film that, well, as we're going to get into over the next hour, um, is sort of a, a lightning rod in the history of both science fiction on screen, fantasy on screen, and a category we're going to hopefully investigate and interrogate a little bit today, the children's film, which is going to have to overlap with fantasy and animation in some capacity, one would have thought. Yes. Um, you hilariously had never seen E.T. until, what, about an hour ago? Yes, yeah, so I saw Con- it. Continuing the trend on this podcast where, despite <laughs> being a film and media lecturer, seem to not be very interested in film or media. No, uh, I've got better things to do, Alex. Yeah, yeah, sure, fine, do. fine. I saw it as Spielberg intended. Uh, on an iPad through headphones in two parts in a cafe, and I think that's. But I, you know, I loved it. I've, I've your commitment I've, to the podcast is uh, commendable. Exactly. No, I'm interested in. Yes, obviously, as you say, it's a it's a lightning rod for a certain kind of of new Hollywood style of filmmaking, um, special effects. I mean, I've yeah, I wrote a couple of things down in relation to to ET's gender actually, and thinking about gender and performance and gender performativity and animation and the kind of rendition of of masculinity and femininity that animated characters do because they are animated because they are rhetorical 2d characters um this is not animation in the in the sense that we've perhaps encountered other podcasts before but um yeah animatronics um so a bit on animatronics bit on bit on gender and also there is a, a brief intertextual reference of a tom and jerry cartoon cool. so i'd love to talk about that as well all that and more to yes. come. and luckily not just the two of us this week we're very lucky to be joined by dr noel brown who is a senior lecturer in film and visual culture at liverpool hope university um noel's published extensively and i mean extensively on children he's an expert film. you could say i would say he's an absolute uh ironclad expert yep. author of seven books that's like seven books chris that's like you're in the football school really they put, really need to pull our finger out they put, um, that's like on the football pools when they put, put the number seven and then in brackets have the word yeah. seven seven uh, contemporary Hollywood animation, the children's film, British children's cinema, the Hollywood family film, and a new collection coming out very soon, or out in the US at least, uh, the Oxford Handbook of Children's Film. And he's also the editor of the children's film and television book series published by Edinburgh University Press. So, Noel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thank you very much. It's time we've sort of skirted around the notion of the family film in, in previous discussions because it's obviously a category that does overlap with our sort of two podcast keywords so mm. it's not it's nice to have you on on the episode yeah. to finally tackle this properly um so i guess the first question to get us going is um why why are we going to do et and why is et a family film well to begin with can i just register my my absolute incredulity and 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 how appalled i am i know where chris, this is going chris, already chris hasn't watched et at this yeah. point i mean this this is this is ridiculous. A good job I turned up, frankly. It is because I'm also not convinced I'd have seen it if we weren't doing this episode yeah, yeah, yeah. anytime <laughs> soon. But I'm thrilled I have seen it and thrilled to talk to you about it. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, E.T. is obviously a, a, a touchstone in many ways in um, 
Hollywood cinema since the 1970s. There was a big sea change when uh, Spielberg and Lucas sort of reinvented the family movie in that period. Lots of the classical family films were basically, you know, quite patrician, um, pitched often a very young audiences. Spielberg and Lucas with Star Wars, Close Encounters, Indiana Jones and E.T., kind of pitched it much more at a dual audience. So, like, still with the traditional pleasures of children's film, but also clearly um, drawing on adult preoccupations, anxieties, social issues as well. So that's one of the reasons why E.T. was so important. I think it was the highest-grossing film ever until overtaken by Jurassic Park as well. So it overtook... Uh, Star Wars, mm -hmm. so it was like hugely commercially successful. It was seen, I guess, as just being this enormously influential movie in pop culture as well. And I suppose you know my interest in it is like I watched it when I was a kid. Um, I think we got like our first VCR player in about 1991, 1992, and recorded it off the TV. I watched it like three or four times in quick succession. I remember my grandmother actually telling me that E.T. doesn't want to be played with anymore after the third or fourth watch-through, which I subjected her to. <laughs> uh, so I must have really liked it. And the interest has never really gone away, yeah. I guess. It's sort of come back in a different form, which I think you can appreciate as an adult in a different way, but also in some of the same ways that you can when you're a kid. Mm. Yeah, Interesting, interesting. I think that notion of dual address is going to be really important as we try and unpack the kind of what, what this film's doing that sort of made its position in film history so important, right? In that, I mean, I'd, I had seen the film a few times as a kid. It was never a film that particularly struck its chord with me. Not that I didn't like it, but it just wasn't the ones you had on repeat. And it mm. had been a while since I rewatched it. And I got a lot out of it rewatching it as an adult that mm. I just did not see as a kid. So I think I'm really interested in that idea of a dual address. But, but perhaps just to contextualise some of what you're saying there and unpack it for listeners... So we're saying this is a pivotal family film. It's established what we might call a family film today, even, or the blueprint of what the family film is today. Yep. So might it be helpful to explain what a family film was pre-ET yeah. and what a family film now looks like as a result of it? Because I think we're entering into a category where, yeah, it's back to, back to genre and labels and all this sort of stuff and where the yeah. labels come from and who's using them and all that kind of fun yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the category of family film has always been quite... Um, an informal one in some ways you know studios have used it critics have used it audiences use it but there's never any kind of like specific definition so I guess it was used initially it was in it was adopted by the industry in maybe the 20s and 30s as a way of adding legitimacy to Hollywood which was seen at the time as being a very um, seedy, a very kind of like working class and a very adult oriented medium mm. as well. So lots of children went to see movies in that time but a lot of the films were clearly made for adults and they had themes and representations of sexuality and violence, even in the silent era that was considered to be just not appropriate for children. So producers like really hit on this idea of let's label cinema you know hollywood cinema mm. as a family amusement you know something that can draw the middle class families add prestige but also like draw mixed audiences of adults and children one of the assumptions being that if you've got young children in the audience they'll drag along the parents sure and also if you can appeal to like the mother they'll drag along the father as well <laughs> so that's like where the traditional family film idea comes from you know one being very much like heterosexual kind of like family, mother, father, couple of children, all watching the same film, mm. all enjoying it and finding things to, to interest them mm. in it. But it's not a genre at this point. It's, 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 it's generic, but not necessarily a genre. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the question of whether family films are genre or not yeah. is, like, is, is obviously a gigantic yeah. one. Uh. <laughs> we've got three got three three terms yeah, now on the podcast uh, to play with and all of them probably aren't <laughs> genres but hey yeah, yeah, yeah I, 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 maybe best to kind of like skirt over that one a little bit but I think it's true that like the Hollywood decided that it was going to be a family institution and there right. was a lot of work done by the industry's trade body the motion picture producers distributors of America to market these films as being for families and try and rope studio heads into buying into this idea so what then followed was a programme of adaptations of literary classics, 
There were lots of uh, yeah, Little Women, mm-hmm. David Copperfield, Charles Dickens, Louisa May Alcott. There was uh, some Shakespeare adaptations. They were all labelled as being family films. Uh, we also had like child star films, you know, Shirley Temple. Mm-hmm. This was the, the great era of Temple, Mickey Rooney, Jane Withers, quite a few other people. You also had Disney, you know, emerging around that time. And Disney's initial films were definitely seen as being quintessential mm-hmm. family films as well. Um, it kind of... It dwindled a little bit, I think, in the 50s and 60s. Disney kind of like took over the family film realm. Mm. And what was left was almost kind of like hollowed out a little bit. Again, like adaptations of of literary classics and things, but like the mass audience has kind Mm. of abandoned it a little bit by this point. Is this because television is almost becoming family entertainment? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I was just thinking about the 1950s and kind of the family appearing, but under the guise of the social problem film or the Jew. So the family is something kind of... Is, is being framed or being understood in a slightly different way. So you've got the social problem film of the, the 50s and sink, uh, 60s and delinquency and, and that, yeah, kind of this using the family film as something that's as old as, his, as, old as, as old as Hollywood itself, yet something that still remains elusive in terms of how one defines it, the fact that it's not a genre, the fact that it um, dwindles, as you were saying, and then, mm. then we deal with this point where it kind of re-emerges. So we've got 50s, not Disney have overtaken... And then I guess we get what the introduction of or the, redu- the the destruction of the, the Hayes Code and New Hollywood and things like that. That doesn't seem yeah. like a quote unquote family friendly yeah. space, whatever on earth that means. So that's not <laughs> the kind of Hollywood, and and that's where we are sort of what in the late seventies as things like Star Wars and ET emerge. Yes, that's okay. exactly it. So that's okay. the context in which Spielberg and Lucas kind of reemerged, took on some of the elements of the um, classical series and serials comic book adaptations, Book Rogers, Superman, stuff like that mm-hmm. from the 30s and 40s, and really updated it with, like, spectacle. They actually had money behind them. Um, but also, like, definitely a little bit of, like, social anxiety, like adult interest, like, creeping in. So these are not, like, purely for children. There's definite, like, adult subtext going on in these films as well. So... Um, I think particularly in Spielberg's films, there's always been like this darkness there. Uh, uh, James Kendrick wrote a book a couple of years ago called Darkness and the Bliss Out. And it was basically saying, you know, even in Spielberg's earlier films, there are these dark themes and preoccupations in there, even though we might tend to think of them now as being very kind of like saccharine and overly sentimental and being very child oriented. Mm. So so these these are films, I guess another tension is that these are films for the family and they're films about, about the yeah. family and, mm. and those two are two slightly different things. And, and, and if we think about this film is about the family, I mean, I guess one of the things to tackle straight on, I, I mean, I was, I, I was thinking about it in terms of how the film interrogates, analyzes the family. I know this is a well-worn kind of interpretation of the movie and I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. But how, what do you feel about, because there's, there's that famous, is it Robin Wood, the classic, you know, it's the infantilization of Hollywood. Holly, we had this moment where Hollywood was like, cool and about adult sophisticated stuff and then bloody Lucas and Spielberg came along and ruined it with their Reaganite politics and made everyone obsessed with families and children and, and that kind of, yeah, Reaganization of, 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 of Hollywood. Is that a narrative that you're kind of broadly on board with or do you find it uh, ET a more subversive text than that or, or just less simple text than that or uh, is, a, is, as Wood sort of right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think he's wrong but there's a grain of truth in it. Yeah. Um, I, I, one of the things that Robin Wood talks about is like the, the, the idea of regression that these films are trying to, to bring adults back to a kind of symbolic state of childhood. Um, he says that implicit in that is adults' desire to evade responsibility. So he's he's suggesting in a way that this is very much like the Freudian theory of regression. Mm. It's trying it's it's running away from trauma, something bad that's happening in our life, and that maybe we'll find refuge in films like Star Wars and E.T. Uh, mm. But at the same time, um, I think he makes the assumption, as a lot of kind of like old school old school critics do, that these films are in some way. Um, pandering to very kind of like base desires. And I don't think that's really true. Mm. And there is complexity in these films. Um, but the films also deal with important social issues. Mm. Um, so what he tends to assume is that like, there's, there's kind of like nothing of real serious intent in these films. That they're, they're just kind of like disposable, pandering to our worst desires. 
Um, and I suppose one of the things that um, there has been this counter trend in, in some of the, the writing about films like this in recent years. Peter Kramer um, wrote an interesting piece where he argued that films like E.T. participate in a kind of social work, um, almost like bringing families together in the real world as they're rebuilding these families on screen. Um, and that's something that I've kind of like broadly got on board with in my writing as well. The idea that these films might be offering us something um, that beyond the purely like base sensorial spectatorial level that might be kind of like interesting philosophy. Well, I mean, let's let's dive into it then, because I think I think what I was struck by watching it um, in preparation for this podcast is that I had forgotten some of the kind of beats of the movie that kind of really help in explain the storytelling and I'd forgotten kind of how glacial almost the first sort of 20 minutes in terms of the yeah. world building is and you've got you've got essentially a kind of silent Wally-esque well mm. should we say Wally is E.T.-esque and put that to bed but <laughs> yeah um, sort of five ten minutes where actually we don't start with the family we don't start with Elliot we don't start with the, the nuclear suburb as most family films would do today but we mm. actually start with E.T. we start with E.T. what E.T.'s doing on earth the, the kind of government response to it it's very close encounters in in tone, I would almost say, yeah, but kind of the government as threat, the government as kind of um, surveillance. And actually, it's E.T. by which we enter into the family. It's not the family by which we yeah. enter into to E.T. The E.T. E.T. is E.T. is is E.T. is the is the dinosaur experts, not the dinosaur. He's the one we're looking at the family through. I think that's a really interesting thing to remember because that really does set up the rhetoric of this movie. This isn't a movie about us living in the family space and it's infiltrated by E.T. It's not intrusive. It's a portal quest if we're doing fantasy rhetorics. It's we're travelling with E.T. into the mm. world of the family and thus we're approaching it from the position of the outsider rather than position of someone inside, which I think is a really interesting and perhaps a complicated, in terms of what we're talking about, the politics of the thing, where to, where to start with it. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. I mean, uh, it, it strikes me that Close Encounters, the aliens, however kind of like benevolent they end up being, are definitely kind of like other. They're mm -hmm. external. It's quite ominous, you know, the, the arrival of the aliens in Close Encounters. Whereas, like you say, like E.T. takes the opposite perspective, where, like, we see the world through E.T.'s eyes initially, and then we see it duly through Elliot's eyes as mm -hmm. well, you know, later in the movie. But there's that kind of, like, close relationship the film develops between the alien and the child, mm. who are kind of like two aspects of the same kind of character, in a way. Mm. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, in, he's, he's other E.T., but only kind of externally, you know, in, in kind of like essence, he's a human child in some ways, I suppose. So mm. we see it from that kind of like child's eye perspective. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. And that's that seems to be, I mean, I, my, my first note, beyond the fact that we have these kind of animatronics, which we'll get into, and, and um, Carlo Rambaldi, who worked on both King, the six, uh, 76 version of, of King Kong, sorry, and then... Uh, oh, go on, give, it, give, us, give us it now. You know you want it. No, no, I was just, I was, just, <laughs> I was kind of looking up... Um, uh, given that this is a different kind of form of puppetry, because I think actually puppetry, puppetry and the materiality of the animatronics are really important for the film in terms of contact and touch between Elliot and E.T. And, and, and even when the, the doctors later, or the doctors slash scientists slash government are trying to resuscitate E.T., it's really important that he's a kind of tangible thing to, to hold and to try and bring back to life and to hug and to... Um, and this is around the same time as... Um, well, it's the same year as, as Blade Runner and Tron, but also around the same time as kind of like The Thing, which has the very famous clear, and then the kind of material body opens up. So there's just something really important, I think, about the fact that, that Rambaldi's, um, who was an Italian VFX artist, he's sort of, the fact that this is tangible material animatronics, kind of latexy rubbery, I think that is really important for, for the fact that this is a film about kind of different forms of kind of contact. Um, but actually my, my, my note after that is about broad themes of alienation, which obviously is, is made literal through, through yeah. E.T. Um, and also matched in Elliot's alienation and the fact that these two characters kind of run parallel to each other. And as you say, E.T. might as well be a, a child and in fact, is it becomes Drew Barrymore for a sequence where they go on kind of um, trick-or-treating and stuff. So it's supposed to be a child. But I don't have Elliot's alienation, which is set up right at the start when his brother and his brother's friends are all sitting around um, smoking. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, just, just, I just thought... Smoking just like, and playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looks like they're swigging beer, but it's not beer, but it could be beer. But the fact this is also a film where children get drunk, it would seem. Um, so I was just kind of interested in, in questions of alienation, the point of view shots right at the start that give a kind of truncated world or view of the world from the ground up. Um, yeah, and the way that I guess the whole film is structured around children's perspective. I like the fact that the three different children... Um, Gertie, Michael and Elliot all have different reactions to to E.T. Because mm. it's all really about children's perspective and their reactivity and things like this. But, um, that was my yeah. kind of little note. How, how shocking are those opening sequences supposed to be in terms of the representation of the family? Because that is, this is not yes, cosy, that's, Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. Is a, this is a spiky, <clears throat> problem-filled yeah, family yeah. here. Are we supposed to find it quaint like we are now because it's 20 <laughs> years later? Or is, is, there, is Spielberg trying to kind of be a bit more hostile in his rhetoric here? Well, it's very personal to Spielberg because yes. his his parents were divorced as well. So, like the the story of ET comes partially, of course, from the fact that Spielberg, when he was a kid, was the product of what at that time would be considered a broken home, mm. and he had an alien imaginary friend. So, part, a lot of what we see in ET is Spielberg kind of like w- working through these issues of uh. what it, of what it means to be from parents you know who were divorced. But yeah, I think you're right. It is supposed to be kind of a bit unsettling. And this was at a time when divorce was viewed as being cataclysmic even for the sake of uh, the family. It was was, uh, a trauma that children may not ever get past. So in some ways, it's the work of films like this to Mm. to recuperate the family or remains of the family Mm. and bring people through. But yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, the ominous of those early scenes is palpable, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think the way the film kind of allows us to to view it or invites us to view it is probably better. Is is that you know because because it's kind of we've gone straight from ET to this world. This is the world we're now having to learn about. This is the world whose rules we are. You know, this is Oz. This is Munchkinland. This is uh, this is you know Helm's Deep. These are mm-hmm. this is the location of which we're not quite sure how things are structured and we need to learn how they're structured and 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 that sense of being askance from from I mean there's a line in it when they're playing Dungeons and Dragons where Elliot wants to play and, and they say we're in the middle of the game Elliot you can't just cut your way straight into the middle of a fictional universe um, and it feels like that's sort of what the films do is like we're gonna just have to slowly the, this is the area that you need to learn about this family is this family is the thing you need to quickly understand so that that it's not yeah. you know quite often these these the family film now the shortcut is right kid gets on a bike cycles up the road to the friend down the street and you instantly oh you, it's that family that's in all the movies but yeah. this isn't that family this is a, a particular family with a particular set of circumstances that the film invites us to really consider and understand before anything else happens yeah yeah i think that's absolutely right and then of course we introduced to elliot and and the film and and, and how much of this film is set from Elliot's point of view in terms of the filmmaking. It seems like almost once Elliot's in the film, and E.T. actually, as you say, Chris, mm. physically very similar in size, the whole film seems to be shot from yeah. their point of view, or at least a lot of it, making yeah. the adult space. Is that, a, I mean... Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that was like very unusual at the time as well. So like often in family films, you'd have the cameras at head height for adults, looking down on children. Mm. So very kind of like patrician, very paternalistic. E.T. does it the other way. And actually for a lot of the film, you don't actually see the upper half of the grown-ups. Mm. You, ju- you just see, apart from Mary, the mother, yeah. you just see like their lower half because the camera's on the level at child's eye height. So yeah, child perspective is really important. And also like the denial of like offering us the perspective of the adults. So it's not the aliens that are other in some ways, it's the adult characters. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of manifest, I suppose, later on when the, sci- the scientists are sort of, I've, I've got to note something like, it's not the aliens, it's humanity. Alien is not the villain, it's humanity. Because you've got the kind of Darth Vader style sound effects yeah. as these sorts of scientists. Yeah. Um, one thing I did want to go back to is the Dungeons and Dragons thing. I'd sort of- for- so Let's go there. I'd, well, I'd sort of, I forgot that, but I was thinking about the role of fantasy as a sort of narrative device. Like the, the, these are characters that are kind of familiar with fantasy because not only they're playing Dungeons and Dragons, but they continually refer to ET as the Goblin. Remember the Goblin? Yeah. And it's all I don't know. There's just something interesting about their 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 um, what's the word literacy 
with regards to fantasy tropes and character types and that kind of, to almost rationalise E.T. by drawing on, it's okay, it's just fantasy, like a goblin. Or I just was really struck by that when you mentioned Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. I thought, oh yeah, there's a parallel there. To I think, I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this half-baked theory I developed whilst watching E.T. But I, I've always had the, the contention that, that well, that, that, that Star Wars is not really a sci-fi, it's a fantasy movie. Yeah. Um, if, if, if one can be bothered to make a sharp distinction between the two, but if one can, sci-fi is all about kind of rationalising the impossible and um, fantasy is about celebrating it. And, mm. and to me, Star Wars, if, if you replaced a lightsaber with a sword and you replaced a, a, an alien planet with a faraway kingdom, you, 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 you're sort of, you're there already. And actually this, and, and you know, this compared to Close Encounters feels like Spielberg also stepping. Yes, it's a sci-fi movie, but actually, it's not really interested in the origins of ET. The adults yeah. seem to be very interested in the origins of ET, but the film isn't interested in the origins of ET in any way. It vilifies them for caring mm. so much about where he came from or all that stuff. What matters is that this is a wondrous creature a goblin, um, a, yeah. a figure of childhood yeah, yeah. imagination. And it's that imaginative appeal that the film is, is, is going for there. So in a way, this is as important as, 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 as Star Wars in, in transforming the rhetoric of sci-fi from what was once quite a rationalistic Arthur C. Clarke you know, um, world to a very fant fantastical version of sci-fi, which is mainly what we get these days. Yeah, I mean, and it does seem like more of a fantasy film than a sci-fi film to me. E.T. even, I mean, Close Encounters is obviously a film about about aliens, but really it's about kind of mysticism. Sure. And it's like yeah, religious yeah, yeah. themes undergirding it. Um, E.T., it's sort of obviously it's very interested in E.T., but not in terms of like the possibility of alien life and what alien cultures would look like. You know, I think Robin Williams came out with this great line. Um, E.T. is one of us, he just looks a bit funny or something along those lines. So in a way, this is a kind of framework by which... Spielberg can explore certain issues and ideas that he's interested in, but it's not really about the possibility of science and alien life and exploration and concepts mm. and philosophical existential kind of like concepts mm. that tend to undergird sci-fi. So mm. yeah, instead it's about um, yeah the one the wonder the wonder of ET the 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 you know ET as a figure that can make bikes. You know, fly but does it that does that mean that the film puts the intrusion of ET into the world, or the the presence, or the integration of ET, the kind of comical integration of ET into the the domestic space, and the children trying to hide, and the mum being somebody whose peripheral vision is terrible? Um, <laughs> but but is it is it that the film is saying that that the the presence of ET in the home and for the family and for the children? Is is a is exactly as you say. It's a, it's supposed to be appreciated as a moment of wonder and nothing more, and by by extension is therefore similar to a game of Dungeons and Dragons or the Buck Rogers cartoon comic strip that appears or the Tom or, and Jerry cartoon or, or Peter Pan. Or Peter, or, yeah, yeah, but yeah. all these little moments in the film where we see, just you know, I don't know, a bit of animation, a bit of. Um, them playing Dungeons and Dragons, the fact that they call him a goblin. Is it, it is is the film supposed to, as you said, I think the film, the adults are interested in where E.T. comes from, but actually the film and the children are just caught up in the fact this is kind of cool and looks a bit funny. Yeah. And they, they also recognise him as one of them, I guess, as well, yeah. the children. I mean, there's a, there's a closeness and an affinity yeah, yeah, between yeah, yeah, children yeah. and E.T., which is obviously not possessed, with maybe the exception of that kind of strange scientist character, Keyes, who mm. is a kind of <clears throat> quintessential Spielberg man-boy in some ways, but also he's a government scientist. But, so what does this mean, then, by this idea of kind of... OK, so the film... We, we, we're, we're led to believe that the father is absent. This is in in connecting up to, to Spielberg's own... And you were talking, I was really interested about this sort of divorce rate and divorce being considered this cataclysmic event from which children might not recover. So that's really interesting in relation to what the film sets up in relation to a separation of parents, that E.T. becomes this sort of cathartic figure for Elliot, but a cathartic figure that doesn't replace his father. Mm. If we're saying he's child, because you can see where, well, I don't, Alex is putting a face, I'm, well, so I'm, I'm interested in that. Are we saying that E.T. is childlike whilst at the same time being a replacement for his father? Because that's an intriguing sort of split. Alex, your face is I, telling me things. I think, I think there is certainly avenues by which what Elliot is doing is when she when he says goodbye to E.T. at the end, really he's saying goodbye to 
to his fa- he's saying goodbye to the kind of the family the family unit or something. No, there is some yeah. without him necessarily being coded as father figure. It's, something it's about a, a fr- I don't the know, fragmentation. To me, it's a weird thing because yeah. he's both his he's both his friend. He's his child friend. He also has to look after ET quite a lot. So actually, in a way, Elliot is his father figure in many ways rather yeah. than the way around. And there's an opportunity to see ET as a kind of metaphor for. His absent father, and it's all kind yeah. of colliding together. Noel's nodding. I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, yeah, I am. I mean, I think it's it's complex. Like, yeah. like, like we were saying, aren't we? Because in some ways, the father being absent is in Mexico with Sally. That's kind of the central problematic for the family at the beginning of the movie. Yes. And we see the mother who appears to be on the edge of a nervous breakdown, just kind of like barely holding things together. Mm. With that point where Et's brother like really has a go at, uh, at Elliot, doesn't he, for like being insensitive and like. Causing further upset to Mary because yeah. he because he he has to mention who we assume is like this new like woman that the father's got. Um, so as the film goes on, um, E.T. does have the kind of like function where he's a, in some ways he's like a Mary Poppins character <laughs> who's, who's healing. The yeah, family. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in other ways, like you say, E.T. has to take on that kind of paternal role himself and get him. Reacquainted. So E.T.'s a child, but he's also a father. He's also a friend. And the film does kind of like blur the boundaries or maybe moves between these different kind of states of relationship between them. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that the way the way it can afford to do that is because because the creature himself is a kind of, yeah, this 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 liminal you know, it doesn't exist within any st- stable context and scenario. It, there's the opportunity to invite all these different readings and, and interpretations of, of it. Yeah, I have a question, Alex, about hesitation, oh, no. because I, uh, what, having heard you speak about Mary Poppins and and the kind of hesitation of one experiencing or spe- the spectatorship of fantasy, mm. um, which somebody should write a book on. Um, the spectatorship of fantasy, this sort of hesitation and these characters, I was struck, you know, you've got these characters that are caught in this. Elliot learns about E.T. first, then it's Michael, then it's Gertie, who's got to be a reference to Gertie the dinosaur. Yeah. I mean, come on. Um, so, <laughs> right, that, yeah, put that in your pipe and smoke, it's Wilbur. Gertie the dinosaur. Gertie what. the dinosaur being... Drew Barrymore. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Thank you. But oh, yes, I see. Um, uh, a film by Winsor McKay from the 1910s. I want to say 1912 or 1914. I can never remember which one comes 19- first. 1914. How yeah. a mosquito operates or... How a mosquito operates comes first. first. Yeah. So I can never remember which year it's... But, um, yeah, Go to the Dinosaur is very famous, very famous... Um, uh, early animation, animation. But, as, but but doing more than animation thinking kind of about performance and um, and Donald Crafton talks about performance and does his own kind of stage show of Gertie the Dinosaur as well kind of tours around but anyway um, so the three children see the character and react very differently Elliot's kind of just intrigued and almost stakes stakes out the the, the, um, the family home because he just wants to see E.T. Michael is set up to be Macaulay Culkin's brother in the Home Alone films, but actually is, ends up being really nice, and 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 it's also about, I like their relationship. I thought it was really nice between those two characters. Whereas Gertie just sort of shouts, screams, cries, and then but there, I don't know. So I was interested in all three of these characters' relationships, and I was trying to think about when I've heard you speak about Mary Poppins and and the children and the hesitation as the children as sort of not being being not quite sure about Mary Poppins, and then and I wondered whether hesitation. Is that something you said about the spectatorship of fantasy films? Is hesitation also something that applies to a spectator when they're confronted with uh, an effect that they're not quite sure of? We would term it uncanniness. Oh, it's, the special effects are a bit weird and they're a bit uncanny. But there is a moment where E.T., because E.T. is truncated upon his arrival, we see him in his fingers, then we see his feet, then we see him in silhouette. We don't really get his reveal. Yeah, he's, he's shot like Bruce the Shark from Jaws. Like it's all that you get the limbs, <laughs> yeah. you get the bits, yeah. and, the, and then the reveal comes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that, but because of that, it made me think about the reveal of of ET and how hesitation is something that is is fueled in a fantasy film by by visual effects as well that you're kind of there's a moment where you're like is that siege is that uh, that's that's puppet there's this kind of there is a hesitation that goes on I just wonder what your what your thoughts were given that as I said I think the materiality of E.T. is particularly important and did make me hesitate because I thought and the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park do the same thing and they are both technologies CG and and animatronic so I'm just is hesitation something that could apply to what visual effects discourse would call just the uncanniness but actually it's something that uh, could be hesitation. Uh, yes, 
buy the book. Uh, say more about it. Uh, but, which bo- and which book's that, Alex? Uh, thank you. It's uh, Encountering the Impossible, yeah. uh, available from from overpriced bookshops sure. all over the uh, world. Yeah, no, I was just um, thinking about, uh, about that in relation to effects. No, so just... uh, but, but I guess the other thing I would say is, and back to what we're talking about in terms of his ability to slip between different readings and different interpretations, is that you can call it uncanniness, but uncanniness has that kind of, you know, um, creepy or yeah. uh, kind of connotations. There's nothing necessarily creepy about E.T. or the way he's rendered or anything like that. But there is the inevitable thing with any moment of VFX or any moment of, of visual wonder on screen, which is back to your, you know, your mate Eisenstein and 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 I know very well, but I know yes, this, yes, but yes. I see. I know that I know that E.T. is not real because I know that, that such a creature does not exist, and yet I see it in photorealistic terms on the screen. And so mm. that is different from Elliot. Elliot is a is a protofilmic object. Um, well, I suppose. Well, so, either. so, so the animatronic. This is what I mean. The, the, the yeah, reality yeah. is important. That we know that they are on set together. Yes. Rather than Ewan McGregor talking to a tennis ball on a stick. Yeah, I would but, absolutely agree yeah. with that. And, and and the tactility of that does feed nicely into into the themes mm. of it. But because E.T.'s unrealness is 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 there in his visual representation, that means we're allowed to see him as all these different things because he's yeah. not fixed in any. Yeah. In any one way, shape, or form. Does that play at all into this notion of the dual address, though? Because uh, we're talking about this from quite an adult perspective of, of sort of you know yeah. the, the culture of science of, of special effects reception. But I don't know if that's what I wouldn't want to make any dispersion about what a kid is doing when they're watching ET. There's a knowingness. I don't think kids watch ET. Thinking, God, they photographed a real alien. <laughs> but it's it's a much more visceral experience, it seems, for children than adults. Yeah, and we see we see Elliot's initial reaction to ET, don't we? Which is to be terrified. But then when he sees the kind of I don't know, I guess, effective mimicry that ET's enacting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it sort of makes him safe. And and I, I guess the initial sequences we see of ET with like the long fingers, just like the little snatches of his body like uh, are slightly grotesque yeah. but then we see these enormous eyes he's got um, which look a bit like a baby's eyes and this was deliberate apparently right, they, were, right. they were trying to build audience identification particularly for children I have a question about relatability then because okay. I know that you're you know you've I've heard you speak um, on relatability and I, so is this part of yeah animation relatability the way that characters I just wondered if there was E.T. is very relatable yeah, I think he's intended to be relatable, I think, because partly because of the way he's presented through Elliot's point of view, the connection yeah. between them, which is one of emotions as well. I mean, I made the connection with Mary Poppins earlier, but Mary Poppins is all about teaching moral lessons, <laughs> whereas uh, E.T. is all about, like, teaching emotions or, or, re- yeah, yeah. or the relearning of emotions as far as Elliot's concerned. Hmm. You know, with his glowing red heart, almost like thawing out Elliot in a way. But yeah, I mean, the, I guess with the idea of relatability, um, E.T. Um, is immediately figured as a lovable person when we see him. And the fact that he looks different is almost like stripped away yeah. because of the way Elliot uh, interacts with him, but also his appearance, which is... You know, like, I think the eyes are definitely important in that. You can imagine if, if he had, like, small black eyes or something, he would be a completely different character. But mm. he looks kind of somewhat childlike in a strange uh, expressionistic kind of way. Sure. but And yet there's also this kind of wiseness to him, a mystical... A yoda A yoda Yeah, that's yeah. it. A yoda nature to, to E.T. That, yeah. that kind of... He teaches as well as sort of. Um, that isn't his yeah. first trip to a planet. I feel like E.T. I feel like E.T.'s been just doing this, just going around. And <laughs> right, Elliot's okay. like child number seventy-seven. Yeah, yeah. Do the old finger trick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had a heart all along. Yeah, yeah. Great. Off we go. Maybe that's why there hasn't been a sequel. Yeah, well, yeah, I was going to yeah, say, yeah. In, in the Phantom Menace, you get an inter- you get a reference to. There's like a, a ship of loads of E.T.'s. So there's loads, yeah. yeah, there's there's like there's in one of like the the court case sequences I think in the Phantom Menace you get um, a, a jury made up of like ten ETs so that kind of fuels the 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 ET verse um, the notion that there's just loads of ETs just going around just meeting kids going yeah. divorce, divorce children in the eighties there's also loads of references to Star Wars yeah. in this this movie that yeah. I did it's, I mean is that What's, why? why? Just because it's such a cultural phenomenon three years, three or four years after... Um, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's the world of the American child of the time. I suppose, yeah. As well. 
and well, not just children, you know, people of all ages, but, you know, it's, it's definitely within the culture for children. Yeah. And the film is definitely very interested in the realities of life for yeah. American children and young people and teenagers at yeah. that time. Mm. And I guess it's also therefore positioning itself in opposition. And if that Star Wars is that it, it's extra fictionalizing Star Wars by having it be a fictional universe in this fictional yeah. world. So it, it's, you know, this is this is if Star Wars is beyond the galaxy, this is this is at home. This is a sci fi movie, as you say, with real uh, social, cultural weight and significance to it. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm. Which which adds to what you're saying about the films. You know, it's not not. It's not about nothing. It's about all these different things, mm. um, and it's using these trappings to to engage with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I have on, on the notion of uh, puppetry, the kind of, of what they call the synchronous brainwave activity later on between Elliot and, and Et. The fact that you've got the animatronic puppet puppeteering the human, I quite liked that, especially yeah. in the scene where um, Et is getting drunk and ultimately then Elliot gets drunk. Um, I had a, uh, a thing about kind of gender because. One of the first questions that the children ask are, is he, is he a he or is, and I just, so I have some thoughts on that, but that's, that's, that's supposed to be, he's supposed to be yeah. male. And that's Gertie who asks the question. Yeah. yeah. But so what, but, and, and that's just assumed rather than confirmed and made just, just, it's just assumed that E.T. is, is male. Is this the, because I have a kind of follow up point, but. Well, it's not really interrogated, but it's assumed. Diegetically, is it like Elliot has, has made, already made a kind of emotional connection yeah. or an empathetic connection with E.T.? He, either he knows yeah. or he's just assumed it he because needs... he's doubling himself in a way. He's yeah. projecting himself. Or, or thinking about his father. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. So, so my, my, there's, some writing on, uh, there's some writing by Sean Griffin on gender and performance in relation to Bugs Bunny and moments in, the, in Bugs Bunny cartoons where Bugs Bunny performs in drag. Um, and it's supposed to be this moment where the male figure is tr- cross-dressing as a, as a female. But um, he says that uh, uh, all renditions of heterosexuality in animated films are just as performative as any rendition of homosexuality. As a result, isolating Bugs's turns in drag ignores how Bugs performs masculinity the rest of the time. So his performance of drag is just a mirror to how it's a performance of mask because gender is, is performative, as, as sure. Butler and others have, have said. Hmm. So I was really struck by the sequence where E.T. essentially cross-dresses hmm. because Michael comes back from school having and, and both E.T. and, and um, Elliot have managed to... Well, E.T. hasn't wangled his out of school. He doesn't know what school is. But, but Elliot has managed to use Spielberg's own trick of putting a thermometer by a bulb and increasing his temperature. So I was just kind of interested in that he cross-dresses, but, but actually he doesn't because... His gender is performed. His masculinity is performed as much as his femininity in that moment. And actually, the moment of Et cross-dressing as female draws attention to the fact that Et's performance of masculinity or Et's masculinity is as performed. So I just thought it was really interesting—a moment of cross-dressing. But Griffin's written about this in relation to okay. drag and, and cartoons. Well, what's the consequence of that then? I've got no no idea. Right. Okay. Uh, I think about the way that gender is, but it just kind of reminded me that, that Griffin would argue that gender is, yes, gender is equally constructed in, well, Butler would argue that gender is equally constructed in the real world. It's the, so um, the stylized repetition of acts. That's is, the quote. Is your, so so what, the, the, the moment of cross-dressing with E.T., by the way, no idea we were going to go here in the, in the episode. Well, you know. <laughs> E.T., the, 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 yeah, the, the, the androgyny of, the radical androgyny of It's just an interesting of way of doing it. But no, you're right, yeah, um... Is it the, your, the, the moment of cross-dressing in the film, actually what it's doing is emphasising Elliot's assertion that E.T. is male, yeah. when actually that assertion is pretty unfounded. It's equally as performative as the cross-dressing yeah. act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind yeah. Of thing. And Elliot's appalled, isn't he? I mean, that's the other thing. Yeah, he is, isn't he? Yes, you're right. <laughs> no, it's just a really interesting moment. No, so, so, but, 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 but he's, he's appalled. If, if we keep going down this, this rabbit hole... We're going hole, there. He's appalled, potentially, because if, he, if E.T. is him... Then that quest that that asks questions of his own gender identity. If he if E.T. is is his father, who is the sort of masculine other who is absent from the movie, then yeah. that that also his ability to to represent that figure is compromised. So E.T. has to be male for Elliot to get some of the the, the therapeutic value that he needs yeah. to get out of him. Yeah, um, it's fine that he's an alien, but not fine when he when E.T. cross dresses. So he's not appalled by the fact that there's an alien. In fact, he he explains it as a way as a goblin, and that's totally yeah. fine. But he is appalled when 
that E.T. kind of quote-unquote cross-dresses, even though his masculinity is only ever, can only, because masculinity is his gender, it can only ever be performed. His uh, masculinity is something that, you know, female. And, and do you think he does perform uh, masculinity, E.T.? I'm, so, I'm just trying to think back on any um, occasions in the film where, where he might. I, 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 well, I don't in, Innately know. he does in the sense that every we are performing masculinity right now, but is the film asserting some kind of performance? Or maybe the film feels in the same way, well, I suppose masculinity is something that often can be, like whiteness, could be, can be left unsaid and invisible, sure. um, unless it's toxic, in which case it's highly visible, um, yeah. or it's queer and it's then made not a problem of masculinity at all. So I would say that it, the film performs it, or E.T., the film allows E.T. to perform it only to the extent where it, is, it, it allows a conversation where Gertie can go, is it a boy? Yeah. Yes, right. Well, that put that that does something to the way that we read. It allows it to go unsaid by saying it at the start. It allows it to sort of be something that right, could just yeah, be in yeah. can be in the film without him necessarily. There's not a scene where E.T. goes outside to chop wood because that's that, that's yeah. that's too mas- That's too on the sure. nose. It's ju- it's just it's just about we, we just take that for granted. Which in the best way, in the way that power structures work, are the things where yeah power. But, but in the same way, E.T. needs to be. M- I feel like for Elliot, he does, masculine yeah. Masculine, yeah. because he is a surrogate masculine replacement for an absent masculine figure. Yeah. And if, if E.T. is feminine, then what the film is doing is allowing a child to reconcile with a purely feminine space that is now his mm, mother, yeah. which well, is another way the film can go down, but the film doesn't offer that as a cathartic conclusion the, to this yeah. story mm. of divorce. It doesn't celebrate a purely feminine space, it it absolves the neglect of masculinity going on at the yeah. beginning. It makes the kid okay that there are no males in it rather than s- celebrate the kind of opportunities of femininity that are available when a space is not, yes. has no patriarch. Yes. Is the, and am I right in thinking that the cross-dressing occurs, the, uh, it is the day off, it's not the day where Elliot goes to school and releases the frogs and comes back. It's something that happens between them on the day and Michael comes back from school and sees sees what's happening. Is that right? Because that's the day where the mum goes to work and says, "You're going to be basically you're going to be here okay on your own, uh, no TV." And then she leaves. And so the cross dressing is kind of like a, I don't know. It's just a, just it's just an interesting yeah, scene. Yeah, it's just, yeah, okay. Just an interesting Fair way enough. of kind of thinking through gender relations. I, I wasn't sure there was going to be any legs in this, but it turns out that the house. Uh, well, it's sort of ET style legs. What's ET? The only thing I know about having not seen the film, my only my only knowledge of ET is the Christmas cracker joke. What's ET short for? He's got little legs. Anyway, um, uh, <laughs> I've got a bit of floating objects, a bit of flying Elliot. Um, yeah, do we have anything rem- remotely useful to say about the famous bike sequence other than it's kind of, you know, this this act of flight, it's set up in the Peter Pan reference. The, um, the, the, the first one, I guess the iconic yeah, I forgot that there were two, of course. Yeah, 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 the iconic one. Yeah, is, I mean, does anyone... It happens, that's all I've got to say about it. Well, I suppose on one level it's an evasion of adult authority, which is something uh-huh. which is, uh-huh. you know, almost the key thing that, that the children, like particularly Elliot... Like you're trying to escape from during the film, and you've got these disturbing sequences where you've got government agents spying on them in uh-huh. very intimate moments as well. So when they are, when they surround the children at that point, that's the point where they they successfully evade and almost beat the what is seen as being like a quite a in some ways a corrupt a, a disturbing mm. kind of system. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't state. have it doesn't have much doesn't have much um, positive things to say. About the adult world, does it? No. This movie, which is no. which is so. What's that doing with back to this, this notion of dual register? The child, great, no problem for the child. They get what they want. They get the destruction of adult authority, a kind of wish fulfillment mm. of that. What does the adult get out of that destruction of the adult kind of superstructures, the adult sphere of? And returning to a childhood world where some of these kind of ingrained responsibilities like paying mortgages and paying your credit card bill, these things that keep you tied to the sort of social order and escaping back into a sort of slightly more or more emotional state isn't necessarily a a politically conservative act. Yeah, I mean, the adult world is horrible. 
Yeah. Uh, or, or it certainly has a capacity to be horrible. And certainly and, has less capacity to kind of be changed in a way that the well, childhood world can. That's the other thing, of course, isn't it? I mean, it's not it's not a purely... Even if it were escapist, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing because even during the, the experience of watching a film, it's temporary. And then we go back to our... If we're an adult, to our adult lives afterwards. So it's not like it's not a permanent escape watching no. a film like E.T. At the most, it lasts ninety minutes or whatever. But there's actually things within the movie that we're confronting. We're working through these issues. I mean, obviously, we're doing it now by talking about yeah. it in a sense. Not saying that everyone who watches the film is going to be thinking about the, these kind of like subtexts. But the fact is that in films like uh, Close Encounters and E.T., Spielberg is confronting the fact that the adult world is objectionable mm. in many ways. And it's about, um, it's about control and intrusion and breakdowns and breakups mm. and emotional trauma and all of these kind of like issues that the film is grappling with in some sense. This is why that, the frog scene is so important then because <laughs> I'd not really thought about it in relation to, well, one, the camera work that you mentioned earlier, but a lot of it is shot down. We never see the teacher's face and it's shot down from his perspective yeah. as he's kind of patrolling between the desks and explaining how they're all going to... Don't worry, there'll be a bit of blood, but you know they're, they're trying to dissect all these frogs, mm. and then through ET he then releases all these things, and it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be a, in another film. This is a kind of comedy sequence that it's about an alien that's getting drunk, and therefore the child is getting drunk, and it's, it's hilarious. The remake of ET would have a field day with this, directed by Todd Phillips or something, you know, yeah. hilarious. But actually, it's it you're right. It, it's an example, or is it an example of what you're saying that the adult world is. Even at school, it's objectionable. And I don't know, it just seemed yeah. to, to, to chime with... Yeah, well, definitely, I think, because it's like you say, I mean, the, the teacher's just so kind of casual in this... Yeah, know, casual, what, yeah, yeah. It, it's, 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 it's a kind of callous act. I mean, I've, I've never dissected a frog. You know, mercifully, by the time I went to school, I don't know about you guys, it was, it was over and done with, yeah. like, dissecting They seem very young to be dissecting a frog as well. Just, yeah, yeah. Just anyway, exactly. anyway. And, and yeah, so there's something quite horrible about it. And and the the everyday just taken for granted nature yeah. of the callousness, uh, or what seems to me to be callous, and obviously yeah. to to Elliot and, and ET as well, yeah. really kind of like comes across. And and the fact that again you don't see the teacher's face; it's only framed from the waist down. Yeah. Uh, th yeah, these kind of adult figures are remote, and because they're remote and you can't see their eyes like you can with ET. They feel uncaring and maybe dangerous and shadowy and their motivations can't really be ascertained. Yeah. I I mean, I have on the question of kind of the adult, I then had a question about the conclusion of the film where when E.T. is is going back home. And am I right in thinking the first time he says home phone and then every time after it's phone home? I think so. Just to wrap, they were talking about this, the kind of the Nelson yeah, the Mandela I, effect of he yeah. says home phone first. Anyway. Yeah. After play again, Sam, and um, uh, what else? You said one the other day that was really good, and I've totally forgotten it now. Uh, play again, Sam, and something else that is never said in a film. Well, I don't we think we're in Kansas anymore, isn't said in The Wizard of Oz. So right, right. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, um, the, the feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, I think is what she says. So when E.T. is finally going home, um, all of the, we have, it's about um, Elliot's, Saying goodbye, as you said, he's, he's sort of recoup. He's one, he's recuperated into the child gang. Mm -hmm. Let's say, like you know, he's they're all they're all cycling together. We have the first flying sequence, which is I suppose industrially important because it becomes the Amblin logo. Is it the Amblin logo? Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, it's also so, the ride, isn't it? The ET. I know that's right, still right, going. Right, right. Yeah. I do remember vividly that being the ride at Universal. So the first on these bikes and right. Okay, so the first flight is kind of almost yeah symbolically in, you know it's mm -hmm. the. The flagship. The second one, as you say, the kind of evasion of adulthood. Um, but Elliot gets recuperated in the child game. They're kind of all cycling together, and then they all, they all fly together. When he's then saying goodbye to Elliot, you I mean, have skip it by the the weird fifteen minute hospital oh, body horror sequence. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's, e. talk, about, e. let's like, talk about that first. Let's talk about no, that first. The ET is like dead and uh, yeah. you know and dissected essentially, or like a least, frog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again. Again, again, I guess that is, you're quite right. The adult world is, we were talking about the rhetoric of fantasy in sci-fi earlier. Mm. Well, as a third rhetoric, horror is used in this and it's used in, to depict the adult world. The adult mm. world is monstrous in this movie and, and that's the most monstrous sequence mm. and I've completely forgotten about it. And, and stylistically, it, it seems very different as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it, yeah, it, it does. It has a very very ominous tone, and the, like John yeah. Williams' music very much points that up as well. But it's also within the the mise en scène and the cinematography in the scene as well, isn't it? You, know, yeah. you get some some very kind of unsettling shots. Yeah, and and again, you know, they're all wearing these these suits, these kind of body yeah. suits as well, and so you. You can't rationalise them. The only one we ever really see is is Keys, I think. The, yeah. The, the kind of the sympathetic face, I suppose, <laughs> of, of the adult world. Uh, he's the one who says, I'm glad that he met you first. Is that the guy yeah. who yeah. says to Elliot that he's glad that E.T.? So, yes, hospital sequence, all a bit horrific, and then, by all means, uh, take us to the conclusion. You, When you have all the shots of characters sad, distressed that E.T. is... is um, Ascending to the, you know, ascending heavens. to the heavens. You get a shot of the mother crying, and I wasn't. I, I would be interested in pe- in your interpretations because she's absent for quite. She's she's absent for quite a lot of the film, um, and tries. To, I hadn't really read her as being on the edge of a a breakdown, but no, I think I you're right. No, I think you're because there is a real. She dresses up for Halloween, and then there's odd shots of her waiting for the children to come back and I don't know she's she's on edge and distracted and, and all that sort of stuff which presumably is a sign it's supposed to be symbolic of exactly this cataclysmic impact that divorce would have had and the mother just becomes this way of communicating that yeah you know, her on edgeness yeah yeah I mean she's she's the victim of this yeah. appalling appalling act you know like the the divorce. We were, to be fair, we don't actually know whether there's been a divorce or not. But the father's left the house and mm. taken up with another woman. Yeah. So it's like she's the one who seems to be like she's not taking it in a stride. I mean, you fast forward like just over ten years, and you like Toy Story comes out, and we never really find out what happens to the absent father. But it doesn't seem to affect the day-to-day life of the family very much. But in ET, you know, like like you say, the impact on her is incredibly uh, profound mm. and. There are all these sequences where, like, you see her kind of shaking and tearful and brittle, yeah. and just about, just about mm. to lose her temper, about to lose it apparently on a few occasions, which she doesn't. But you sense that it's not far away. <laughs> so I was trying to figure out whether her her crying at the end is because she can't be sad that Et is leaving because she's not really, she hasn't got you know skin in the game. So I was trying to figure. I was trying to see if there's another interpretation. Is she? Is this all about Elliot? Is it? I don't, I don't know. I was just really uh, struck of all the people to have these well, because reactions. Because she, she doesn't really befriend Et, does she? No, she's so, not one of the gang by the end of it. But she's teary, and she's. Yeah. And so I was just trying to figure out what that insertion, um, as when I was an undergraduate, uh, it was something. It was from drawn from a seminar from Fargo, which often the Coen's Fargo, which often leaves the shot. A little too long, and you get the reaction. And the, and Ed Gallifant, my teacher, used to call it uh, criticism by flash insert, as sort of like a moment. That's, and it was just, it just seemed a moment of uh, her reaction to ET leaving has got her really emotional. And I was trying to figure out why, and whether to tie it into the, the the role of ET for Elliot. I don't know. I just would be interested in what that, yeah. that kind of whether there even is an interpretation because there are lots of people why for is whom she upset? whose life Elliot uh, as uh, ET has touched. Sorry. And, and it's not hers, but yeah. she's really upset at the end. And I was trying to kind of get my head around what whether that taps into the the presentation of the family. Mm. Maybe not. I think it does have something to do with Elliot, because okay. there is that sequence, isn't there, where Elliot's absolutely distraught because it seems like E.T.'s died, and then you just know, she just kind of comes into the frame, and he's looking away, and then she just kind of softly says, "Elliot." And he turns around and shouts, "Mom!" And like oh, they, have this, yes. they have this huge hug. And I don't oh. know whether it's like the the idea that she recognises the doubling that's taking yeah. place between them, or maybe she sort of like sees this as their their moment of reconnection somehow. Yeah, yeah, and 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 th- through a mutual exception of loss as well, because essentially she's crying at her son saying goodbye to to ET. So. If if it's a double, you know, if she's acknowledging that doubling, she's acknowledging that you know Elliot's, you know, if we've said one of the readings could be that you know he's actually saying goodbye to sort of his father, or he's saying goodbye to the mm. sort of the the family unit that they're still mourning in in the opening act of this of this film that that we never get to see, but is sort of there as a ghostly mm. absence. Yeah. So so she's crying that her, that her son has has 
experience loss again. It, 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 it's, it's really, it's finally dealing with the loss, yeah, or it's finally yeah. acknowledging that the, the loss that they all will have to acknowledge. Yeah, or, I think or she's now acknowledging the loss that they all have to acknowledge. Because she's also in a point of sort of repression about it. She doesn't want to hear about, you know, the new life of her husband and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's key, isn't it? I mean, the, the expression of emotion, the, abil- the ability to feel again, comes across with Elliot. Mm. You know, it's when he thinks E.T.'s dead... He's absolutely inconsolable. We see him express express strong emotion almost for the first time, and then also what actually reactivates ET. It's like he, it's Elliot saying that I love you, yeah. and that's when ET's heart sort of reactivates. So it's almost as if, again, you know, like to 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 belabor this point about it all being about like the breakup of the family, no, and the yeah. family coming out of it. It's almost as if he's able to feel again uh, through this relationship. Yeah. And expressing loss, but also rebuilding, becoming a a full human being again. Sure. Yeah. Sure. He had a heart all along, as I said. And, and, <laughs> and to be cynical about it, I, you know, it's the, Elliot's love for ET is not necessarily earned by anything we've seen in the movie. I mean, ET's quite. You know, he's quite fun and he's quite cute, but essentially all they've done is go to school together. Mess up a science lesson and it's sort of three days in the woods. Two you know, days, you know. three days. That yeah. that that expression of love is is unearned in in a kind of durational sense, right? So what yeah. is he loving about ET himself? Himself, yeah, exactly. The the, the, the issues we've been playing with over the last sort of hour or so, yeah, interesting. It's a mic drop himself. So we're back back to Woods' thing about repression. It sounds like the film is about repression, but not in the way he says. In the sense, it's about working through a repression that the fact that emotional repression that the family are feeling at the outset, through to that ability to feel again at the end of it. And ET is this kind of imaginative um, catalyst conduit through which all of this is 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 worked yeah. through. Yeah, I mean, well. Wood sees regression as being like something that's negative, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but actually the film might be suggesting that some of us might need to regress mm. to childhood, you know, to, to get in touch with our kind of authentic selves, yeah. which is, you know, a theme that crops up in a lot of Spielberg's work, the idea of childhood, that roman- the romantic idea, really, yeah. of being a, a kind of place of, of innocence, but also lack of affectation, lack of the kind of the damaging experience of adulthood, that changes us into kind of unfeeling people. Mm. So in that sense, you know, regression to childhood in Spielberg's terms might actually be a very beneficial thing sure. that uh, we could all do with somehow. It's, what, it's the last, it's what the film leaves us with. If it begins, as you said, with E.T., the outside, it starts from his, its perspective, yeah. his perspective, and then the last shot is, is Elliot. So the film literally leaves us with E.T.'s work here is done kind of thing. As you said, sure. it's kind of conduit, but it's just a, a, a quite a close shot of Elliot's face as well, really privileging his reaction. And the film does that a lot, actually. Really privileges the child's reactions to things and allow and allows them, doesn't cut away, but allows them to to kind of cry and be... And actually, very famously, you know, his, his audition sequence, the actor who plays Elliot, is available online and is very famous for him doing it the, the, the audition sequence has been uploaded onto onto YouTube in one take that just allows us to scrutinise this kind of ambivalent thing that always surrounds child performance, whether they are acting or whether they are being. And you've got the job kid, as he says at the end. So the film spends a lot of time focused on, on Elliot's face, which I think is yeah. important. Just and ends the film like that. of emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. Well, as, as Noel said, the ability to kind of feel again. Mm-hmm. And the film allows Elliot to have that ability. Wow. Okay. Well, there we are. E.T. Uh, so there you are, Chris. It's a quite a corker. It's a good one. Yeah. Classic, some might say. Um, uh, yeah. I've said. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no. Thanks so much for thank the, you for yeah, working yeah. through E.T. with us as we we explore how it works through everything else. Um, you, you mentioned it, well. We mentioned it in the top with your bio. That there's two sort of immediate projects that that you're working on. So there's the Oxford Handbook that's just out or is about to be out or probably yes. is now out. Now the podcast is released. The, uh, the Oxford Handbook of Children's Film exists. Um, and that's just I'm, presumably that's just like a slim book. That's a couple of, <laughs> couple of th- thirty pages something. No, yeah, it's, it's a pamphlet, a, surely. Yeah, I think it, I think it's nine hundred pages. Yeah, wow. it's um, it's so, a field definer that one. I think. So any any kind of millionaires who are listening into this podcast, you know, yeah. buy it. And, and and they do listen to this yeah. podcast. Or, or, or librarians. Yeah. 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 More importantly, mostly, yeah. more value members of society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Librarians. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think the official release date is you know early to mid July. Okay. So you know. Okay. Basically out. And um, the other thing, yeah, I've just started a book series with Edinburgh University Press on children's film and television. 
So very, very early stages. Nothing exists yet, but um, kind of exciting development anyway. Cool. Cool. So if any potential academics uh, are out there, they can get in touch via the Road University Press and you're accepting submissions for potential art. Um, Absolutely. Books. I mean, try out your ideas first on our blog. Uh, <laughs> get us a switch. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you absolute charlatan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listeners will cut this. You um, snake oil no, no, I, mean, <laughs> I, I suppose the other version of that sentence is if anyone has written a post, sure. of which there are some stellar posts, um, I'm sure they would make wonderful little okay. 900 page beasts. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes. Right. We, we need to. We are in a hot room recording. We are. Talking about the word escape, we need to escape from the hot room yeah. so that we can return uh, better to understand it. But um, uh, no. One, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great pleasure. And I think Robin Wood would approve of our escaping this room. I reckon so. I reckon so. Yes. Uh, and if you want to escape online, you can. Um, as, nice. as, as As Chris is so desperate for you to do, you can join. You can find about the blog and, and, and look to participate in it uh, at fantasy-animation.org. There's a contact us tab with all the information on how you submit. We're inclusive and available. We want to hear from undergraduates, postgraduates, non-students, uh, librarians, postgraduate <laughs> students, librarians, yeah, extraterrestrials, um, yeah. families of all shapes and sizes you're all welcome if you have something you'd like to say um, and you can follow us on Twitter Facebook Instagram and Reddit at Fan and in Research otherwise we'll be right here bye